0: Like I said, it's my privilege to kind of bring you the word today. Um, But I kind of want to start with more of an apology or a uh, disclaimer, I should say, from the beginning. Um, As many of you know, or maybe you don't know, I I grew up going to this church. Like I said, I I remember the 90s songs. Um, And what I'm about to say at the beginning of the sermon, I hope, is not a single reflection on many of you who were my Sunday school teachers, okay? (laughs) I just want to throw that out there. Don't mean to insult you. I think I was just a slow child, okay? All right. And here's why I'm saying that. When I was a kid, for whatever reason, until I got to college and started reading the Bible, I used to think the Bible was nothing more than fortune cookie statements mixed with moral stories you told kids, okay? Stories like if you're bad and you disobey God, he's gonna send a whale while you're surfing in the ocean, swallow you whole, and spit you out to make you do what he wants, Okay, Or if you're a wee little man who climbs into a sycamore tree to see what you can see, Jesus will love you. Okay, Or fortune cookie statements. And by fortune cookie statements, what I mean is those like verses that are like theological nutshells. Those things that if I was to go to Hobby Lobby right now, I guarantee you there's like a thousand of them on the walls that I could grab and put on my wall. You know what I'm talking about? That's what I mean by theological nutshell. Like John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's a good verse. You don't really need much else. That little, you know, fortune cookie phrase is something you can pull out later and go, yeah, that's good, and then put it away, right? Fortune cookie statements and moral stories. That's what I thought the sum total of Scripture was. And for whatever reason, it wasn't until I started reading the Bible. I know it's a a totally novel concept. Um... That I began to discover that the Bible is not simply a good moral fortune cookie book that you go to when you need a pick me up. It's not just a book of wisdom. In fact, the story of Scripture is actually this grand story. Story that that begins all the way in Genesis 1 with the creation of everything and culminates in the end of Revelation with the consummation or the completion of everything. The story of scripture is the grand story of a God who is in relentless pursuit of his people who for whatever reason have gone to God and gone, I don't really wanna live your way anymore. I wanna live my way. I wanna live as I deem best. It's the story of a people who for whatever reason have decided I don't wanna live as I was intended to live. I don't wanna live rightly. I wanna live wrongly. I want to choose to do what I want to do. It's a story of a people that has lived in rebellion to God the entire time. This is the story of Scripture from front to end, and it's God' work throughout the entire process. Very little of the Scripture is actually moral stories. Very little of it is these little fortune cookie statements either. I mean, even those stories that I mentioned earlier, those aren't really moral stories. If you thought the point of Jonah and the whale is if you disobey God, he's going to swim in the whale, that's not the point, okay? (laughs) The point of those stories and those fortune cookies is actually they fit into the grander story to, to kind of push the narrative further. They're not moral stories. But that doesn't mean that there aren't fortune cookie statements and moral stories in the scriptures, okay? There are. There are fortune cookie like statements, statements that don't require any necessary explanation, but statements that are on their own are just ones you can kind of pull out, look at and go, oh, that's really good. And if you've been following along with us in the book of Ecclesiastes up until this point, and maybe you read ahead into chapter seven, you probably noticed that Ecclesiastes seven has a lot of these fortune cookie like statements, statements that we call proverbs in the Bible. Okay, Proverbs, statements like, let's see here. I like this one from chapter six. The more the words, the less the meaning, and how does that profit anyone? Because, you know, I don't know if you know this, but I like to talk. Um, (laughs) Let's see here. Uh, Or a good name is better than fine perfume, right? Like, you don't need much explanation on this one. That's a good one. And then here's one that, you know, I like this one. Do not say, why were the old days so much better than these? Man, I love the way we used to do it. Man, back in the 90s, things were great. Back in the 70s, things were so awesome. It's not like today. Solomon says, it is not wise to ask such questions. These kind of fortune cookie statements, these proverbs, if you will, some of which are are very easy to understand and things you can pocket. At the same time, there's also some fortune cookie statements or some proverbs that aren't as easy to understand. And in fact, I would say the bulk of Solomon's proverbs in Ecclesiastes are really confusing and downright depressing. For instance, for instance, I'm looking at 7-1, the second half here. The day of death is better than the day of birth. Yeah. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to a house of partying. It's got to be. For death is the destiny of everyone. (laughs) Yeah, this is great. I feel like a real pick-me-up here. It's kind of weird, right? If you've been following along with us up until Ecclesiastes, you're kind of even taken aback. Where are these Proverbs coming from? Why is he going down this direction? Because if you remember, up until this point in the book, Solomon has been on a search for meaning. Solomon has been trying to understand what is the purpose in life. And so as he has said himself, he has tested everything under the sun. He's looked at having women. He's looked at wisdom. He's looked at having power. He's looked at having money. He's looked at having nice land. He's looked at all of those things, and when he's followed them to their conclusion, he goes, yeah, it wasn't fulfilling. It, didn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't what I really thought my life was about. It was meaningless. And for Solomon... His grand conclusion of scripture, or of of life, I should say, from his vantage point is life is completely meaningless. Life is hopeless. And so what he ends up doing at chapter 6, verse 10, is he pivots, okay? Instead of continuing his search for meaning in life, he essentially gives up and says, well, I'm just going to give you some advice about how to live a meaningless life. It's real happy, right? You're like, oh, yay, this is exactly what I wanted to hear when I came to church. But here's the thing. Chapter 7 is probably the darkest spot in Ecclesiastes. Because it's Solomon recognizing, I got nowhere to go. And then he adds this this stuff that we're going to look at today when he starts talking about righteousness. Okay? So he gives some advice about living and that's what he's going to do the rest of the book. But then he moves into this section on righteousness or right living or living as God intended us to live. And if you think it's been depressing up until that point, Solomon's declaration is no one is righteous. That every single person is an absolute screw up. That we have nothing to offer. Not only is life meaningless, We can't do a thing about it on our own. That's Solomon's conclusion. And so what we're going to see is as he kind of explains what righteousness is, he's going to talk about how, well, you can't make life any better and if you try, you're just going to burn yourself out. But you're also not going to make life any worse because you're just going to expedite your death if you try and be worse than you are. So, you know, Aim for the middle. (laughs) Honestly, that's his advice. He looks at life. He sees it as completely hopeless, completely depressing, and he just goes, just hit cruise control. That's it. And you think, you, oh great man of wisdom, right? This is the guy that's supposed to know everything. This is the guy we turn to and go, this is the wisest man that ever lived. Your best advice is deal with it. Seriously, that's, that's Solomon's vantage point. That's how Solomon sees life. And here's why. Because for Solomon, what he does is he simply takes a, a snapshot of life. Like I said, he's looked at every aspect of life. If you think it's going to bring your life meaning, he goes, that's, it doesn't. Power, money, relationships, family, whatever you think it is that you've been striving for, go ahead, try it. Solomon goes, I already did that. It wasn't fulfilling, it was meaningless. And he looks at this and then he looks forward into the future, and Solomon has this like hopelessness. Nothing's gonna change. It's just gonna be this perpetual cycle of meaninglessness it's depressing. But this is where we have Solomon at a disadvantage. Because while Solomon looks forward and sees no hope, we have the advantage to look backwards and see everything through the lens of the cross. And as we're going to see, the cross changes everything. Jesus changes everything. He makes this meaningless, hopeless life that Solomon sees and flips it around and says, no, no, no. Life can be very meaningful. Life can be very hopeful. And that's what we're going to look at today. The approach I'm going to take with us, though, is first, we're going to sit where Solomon sits. We're going to sit in this really awkward space that's going to make some of you go like, yeah, I definitely should have slept in today. The beach is sounding real good right about now. And the reason we need to sit in this depravity, this, this futility, this meaninglessness is because whether we like it or not, whether we even want to recognize it or not, this is where so many people sit. This is where many of our family members sit. This is where many of our friends sit. This is where many of our neighbors sit or the guy you pass at the grocery store sits. Viewing life without the cross, looking like Solomon down the future and going, it's not going to get any better. It's not going to get any worse. I just need to hit cruise control. That's depressing. That's exactly how we live. That's depressing. And we need to sit there and we need to recognize that that is absolutely true. In a world without the cross, that's the best we can do is hit cruise control. But then what we're going to do is we're going to apply the lens of the cross. We're going to show how how Paul picks up the second half of the grand story. Solomon only had half of the story. Paul picks up the second half. And we're going to see how the cross just changes everything. All right? Sound good? All right. So will you open up with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 this morning? Ecclesiastes 7. It's page 464 in your pew Bible. We're going to specifically be looking at verses 15 to 22 today. 15 to 22 in Ecclesiastes 7. Ecclesiastes 7 verses 15 to 22. We good? Yeah? All right, here we go. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. Remember, now he's going to be talking about righteousness From a meaningless worldview. The righteous perishing in their righteousness, and the wicked living long in their wickedness. So, my conclusion is this do not be over righteous, nor be over wise. Why destroy yourself? At the same time, do not be wicked, or do not be overly wicked, and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? For you see, it is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. For whoever fears God will avoid both extremes. Wisdom makes a wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Indeed, and yet, there is no one on earth who is righteous. No one who does what is right and never sins. Don't believe me? Here's a practical example. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. You want to know how I know this? For you know in your own heart that at many times you yourselves have cursed others. Ooh, Ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of the Lord. So he starts here, you know, with a real optimistic note. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these things. The righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. In other words, Solomon sees good men die while bad men thrive. I think many of us have recognized the same thing, right? You would think if life was fair, good people would thrive. Good people would live long and bad people would get what they deserve. You would think that, right? And yet, all we have to do is look at the corruption in the world. All we have to do is look at the life of dictators. And they're living comfortably. They're thriving. While good men and women die every single day. But Solomon recognizes he can't do anything about this. That is life. That is the unfairness, the unfair reality we all live in. And so he's like, all right, well, I'll just give you some advice then. Since you can't make yourself any better, since you can't really get any worse, or you could get worse, here's my advice. Here's my advice. Verse 16 mm, Don't be overrighteous, and don't be overwise. You're just going to destroy yourself. What he means by overrighteous and overwise is not like with a false pretense, it's not like pretending to be more righteous or more holy or more wise than you are, like, I am such a great person. I know everything. I am a super Christian or whatever you want. That's not his point, okay? That's not his point at all. His point is people that are striving by their own efforts, their own abilities to try to make themselves more holy, he goes, if you're going to actually try to improve yourself, if you're going to make yourself look better than you are, you're just going to burn yourself out. Why destroy yourself? I, I think it's got this double nuance meaning, is destroy yourself means like you're going to burn out. Have you ever tried this? Have you ever tried this whole self-improvement you know, worldview out there of I'm going to will myself to be better than I am? You know full well you just burn out. Sure, you do good for a month, maybe two months, and then what happens? Life falls apart, and you're back to where you were. You're just going to destroy yourself. Or secondly, have you ever watched this guy? I, I don't know. The, the image I get of this is a guy that tries to go to the gym, and maybe that's because I've been, I've been trying to go to the gym more often, but I think about this is, have you ever met those people that like start going to the gym, and you're just sick of hearing them go to the gym? Like, they've totally lost their old identity, their old personhood. They're only, I'm gym guy. I work out. It's leg day. You know, like, that's, that's the extent of, like, what I think Solomon's getting at is you lose who you were. We are meant to be people who are dependent upon God, but when we start trying to do things on our own it gets us nowhere. We lose our identity. We burn out. It's frustrating. It's failure. So Solomon's like, don't go down that road. That's dumb. That's not going to work. And at the same time, you know, you could be worse, but that's just going to expedite your death. Do not be over wicked. Do not be a fool. Why die before your time? Why rush into this? Sure, you're not ever going to get better. Yeah, you can get worse, but what's the benefit? Embrace the middle. Cruise control. Let's go for it. Let's just deal with the monotony of life and just go, yeah, I got a mediocre life and I'm going to deal with that. That's his advice. And then he's got this weird thing in verse 19. Wisdom makes one, person wise, or one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Indeed, in verse 20, there is no one on earth who is righteous. It seems weird. Why, why all of a sudden is he throwing in this random line about wisdom? And then what does this have to do with righteousness? Well, it actually makes a lot of sense when we change the word indeed. I don't know why they translated it indeed. Okay? They should have translated it and yet. And yet. In other words, yes, wisdom is of great value. Wisdom makes you more powerful than ten rulers in a city. And yet, even wisdom doesn't make you righteous. For no one is righteous. No one on earth does what is right. Everyone sins. And then he gives this very practical example. (laughs) Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. And this one hit me. For you know in your heart that at many times you yourself have cursed others. We're all in this boat together. If you have not done that last line, one, you should write a book. You should make a lot of money and then give the rest of us all your tips on how the heck you avoided doing that because I have a lot of anger in my heart at times. I get frustrated with people. I lose it. I lose it. Okay, okay, maybe you're not a person that's got your anger issue going on, but you got your thing, right? Every single one of us in this room has our thing. That thing that we're not proud of, that thing we wish nobody knew about, that thing we wish, you know what, our spouse would just keep their mouth shut right now and stopped ribbing us. <laughs> we all know what that is. There's that thing in our life that we recognize, yeah, I'm not living rightly. This this is this is not the way I was supposed to. And it's why we need to take the wisdom to Solomon to heart. It's why when he declares no one is righteous, no, not even one, we need to declare, no, not even me. Not even you. Not even that person that you think could do it. Oh, they're a screw-up too. It doesn't matter how much time or money you give to charities. It doesn't matter if you're not even the biggest screw-up in your family. It doesn't matter how good you think you are. That phrase, at least I'm not as bad as that guy, means nothing. Nothing. Solomon is spot on when he declares there is no one righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Every single one of us needs to recognize and embrace this fact because until we're able to embrace this fact, until we're able to recognize and own our stuff, until we're able to recognize and own that we are messed up, that we are broken, that we have issues, we're never going to be in a place where we can ask for help. I love that whole first step of AA own your stuff. Admit you have a problem. Look guys, I don't know what each of your problems are. I know mine, and it's a long list, okay? And my wife can probably add to my list. If you don't have a spouse, your friends can add to your list. Hang out with me for 10 minutes, I'll point them out. (laughs) But it's not until you embrace your need or your your problem that you're going to be able to understand your need for a savior it's not until you recognize how messed up you are that you're going to recognize your need for Jesus if you continue to pretend like life is good and i'm fine with cruise control i really got nothing else to say like okay you just stop in solomon's word but I'm not happy with that. That's terrible. That's depressing. That's, I don't want that life. I was created for more than this, I know it. You feel that longing in you? Do you really feel like life is perfect? If you do, again, write a book, tell us how and that kind of stuff. I don't think I'm alone in this though. I don't think I'm alone in recognizing I have a need for the cross. And I get that, like I said, this is heavy. I know that there are some of you that are like, yep, definitely should have skipped in, slept in. Church down the street, they don't talk about bad stuff like this. But before we move on, we need to understand something. Solomon is totally right. In a world without the cross, life is completely hopeless. It's meaningless. It's futile. It's frustrating. If you don't believe me, if you're still in that camp of, you know, I I find my life to be hopeful and meaningful, that's great. I would just encourage you to go back through Ecclesiastes because as we've been going through this, as as Solomon has knocked down everything that I ever found my life to be of some meaning, some value, going through Ecclesiastes, I'm like, oh yeah, he's right. Yeah, that, that really doesn't add up. From Solomon's vantage point, this is it. This was all he knew of the story of God. He didn't see a bright future. So you can imagine if this is it, okay, I'm just going to hit cruise control. But fortunately for us, that's not the end of the story. We get the second half of the story. Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes the second half of the story about a thousand years after Solomon in the book of Romans. What, Saul, or what Paul ends up doing is in the first three chapters of Romans is he, he explains in, in great detail more of what Solomon hits on, our brokenness, how it doesn't matter if you're male, female, child, adult, Gentile, Jew, non-Christian, Christian, Christian, whatever. Every single one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us has sinned. And he does a great job explaining that in chapter 3, up till chapter 3, but he doesn't leave it at there. What Paul ends up doing from that point forward is he completes the story. He declares in chapter five, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What Solomon could not possibly fathom was that God in his infinite grace would ever step into our world and do for us what we could not possibly do for ourselves. It doesn't matter how hard we try, it doesn't matter how good our lives look on paper, We can never make things right between us and God. We have sinned, fancy church word. We have screwed up, not a fancy church word. (laughs) We've abused the life he has given us. And therefore, according to scripture, just like you would do with a child, that life should be taken away from us. You abuse a toy, what do you do? You take the toy away from the kid. You abuse life, God takes away life. The wages of sin is death. The penalty of sin is death. That's the penalty. And Solomon knew this. It's why in chapter 7 he writes such morbid thoughts. All he saw was well, the end point is death, so let's just long for that point, guys. Let's get there. But Solomon, in all his wisdom, could never fathom never fathom that God would send his own son to pay our penalty himself. And this is exactly what the cross declares. This is is exactly why the cross changes everything. In dying on the cross, Jesus not only paid the penalty for our actions, for our mistakes, for our abuse of life, But he enabled us to live. Like I said, the punishment was to have life taken. Jesus paid that penalty. He had his own life taken. The righteous died on behalf of the unrighteous. So that, and this is the key, so many times we just stop there. Oh, Jesus died for my sins. Okay, great. That's not the end of it. That art piece is the end of it. He died on the cross so that we might have life. So that me might be able to finally, fully experience the life we were created and saved for. The life God intended us to live all the way back in Genesis. The life that he intended us to have. The life where we are in connection to him. We're in relationship to him. We're in relationship with each other. Our lives have lives of purpose. Lives of meaning. That's what the cross gets us. That is the power of the cross. That's why the cross changes everything. We don't simply stop at the cross. The cross is the start of the second half of the story. The second half of the story is that we're finally enabled to live the lives we were intended to live. We're able to fully experience this. And so church, I beg you, I plead you, stop stopping at the cross. I love, I love that you understand that Christ is the the pinnacle and the cross is everything. I love that. But you need to understand, Christ did not simply come to die to pay pay the wages of your sin so that you can live in heaven. That's not it at all. He came that you would be able to live today. You would be able to experience the fullness of the gospel today. You would be able, in all that you do, be able to fully understand how and why you were created. And so I encourage you, live. Live this week. Do not settle for a life of mediocrity. Do not settle for cruise control. Do not say like Solomon had to, this is the best it is don't there's so much more to life than that that is what the cross declares and so i implore you embrace the power of the cross embrace what jesus did for you and live at this point you're probably going okay okay how how what do i got to do What do I do? Give me my three-point bulletin. Well, here's the thing. My original thing was I want to come up with a list of things. This is what you need to do. I know how to fix your life, and I'm going to just tell you this, 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 and this. You need to start doing this. You need to stop doing this. I want to do that for you. I wanted to have somebody do that in my own life. (laughs) But that's not how it works. You see, Solomon is, again, spot on. If you try to make yourself more righteous, if you try to make yourself more wise, you're going to burn out. You're gonna be one of those Christians nobody likes. And you know who I'm talking about. (laughs) They're obnoxious. And you wanna know why? Because they don't point to Christ for the work in their life, they point to themselves. Look what I did, I don't cuss anymore. (laughs) Oh, good for you. (laughs) I love my family real well, good for you. I'm the best husband there, good for you. Those are annoying. What we need to do is we need to recognize what solomon declares and what paul himself further reiterates we don't live by our own power we can't will ourselves to be better than we are as christians we recognize that it only comes through submitting to the king we're only enabled to live the lives christ intended us to live enabled us to live when we submit or we yield to him and you're like hold on hold on that sounds like work That sounds like you have to do something. Okay, here's the thing. Sure, sure, you have to work a little bit. You know what you have to work at? You have to work at saying no. You have to work at saying, okay, I'm not going to keep fighting it. (laughs) I'll give in. If you want to call that work, it's work. But here's how it's happened in my life. Here's where in my life I've begun to experience the freedom of the cross. The life that Jesus intended me to. I don't look at it as work in the things I did. You can be your own judge of that. First is in the area of money. Okay? And I know some of you are like, oh, you can't talk about money at church. That's just awkward. Especially when you pass the plate afterwards. Um, (laughs) But what Melissa and I did from the time we got married, about five or six years ago, five years ago, we... um, we are very intentional to set aside a big, uh, a chunk of our paychecks and give it to the church or in a couple other things. That was just important for us. And every time we ever got a raise or you know, we got extra money from taxes or whatever it was, we just were intentional to set that aside, okay? We have been blessed to never have to really stress about money. We haven't. Um, it's not really an issue in our relationship We've always been taken care of. And why is that? Because God himself promises that he will take care of us just as he takes care of the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. We just trusted that our finances were from him. That we were blessed by him. I didn't have to do anything. I just said, all right, I'm not going to go to Chipotle as much. I'm not gonna buy my Xbox as soon as I want. I'm not gonna you know, get a nicer car or whatever. We just put that stuff off and we said, all right, God, take care of us. I'll tell you, man, I'm now 30. I have a lot of friends who've been married for a while. Money is always an issue in a lot of marriages. Money's not an issue in my marriage. And it's not because I can take credit for this, but Melissa and I were just very intentional to say, God, the money is yours. Look, I got other issues in my marriage. Okay, <laughs> don't think I'm perfect on this one. She's married to me. Okay, <laughs> um, but I'm just saying. When we started giving that money, we've never, we've never had an issue with money. I, I, think that's part of the free life that Jesus offers us. Another big one. It was one that I learned about a year ago, um, and I've shared this one a ton of times because this one was powerful for me. Um, I, I just finished school. Um, five years of seminary, long time studying the Bible, and an undergrad degree of four more years studying the Bible. I got nine professional years of study, studying the Bible. You would think I would know the Bible pretty well, right? Well, here's the thing. There's this little commandment, all right, depending on your reading. Number four or number three, Sabbath. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. It's not like it's something I should be unfamiliar with. Well, here's the thing. I just ignored it for the longest time. I just ignored Sabbath in my life. And when I was working full time and I was going to school full time, I I didn't take time for Sabbath. I didn't stop, I didn't rest. I didn't do the things that I wanted to do. I didn't do any recreational things. I was just burning through life. And then five years later, I was like, oh, I'm still as stressed as I was five years before. What's the point? And so what I intended to do or what I intentionally did after, you know, Pastor Chris really spoke into my life as as a couple of the professors is I decided, all right, I'm going to take Fridays off. And Fridays for me are no work, no school days. I don't do anything. I do what I want. (laughs) I start my morning and I watch TV. I now play video games. Um, (laughs) Melissa comes home around like one-ish and we go to the pool or we go on a date. We just do whatever. Sometimes we just lay and watch TV or I pick up a book and read. I do whatever I want. I cannot tell you how that has changed my life. How profoundly. I was in, if you wanna call it the rat race, of just trying to keep up and I was just perpetually stressed. I never got enough done. I'm not as stressed about my time anymore. Even going into this sermon, I was not stressed about it. I took the time off. It's huge what happens when you submit to the wisdom of the king. When Jesus says, hey, this is better for you, and you submit and you do, it's crazy, crazy what happens. And like I said, I still got a long ways before I'm able to fully experience the power of the cross in my life. But in these small ways, I'm just beginning to understand what it means to live as Jesus intended me to live. So I I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe you need to, maybe you need to adapt, adopt the Sabbath practice. I tell you, it's huge. If you want to talk about what that looks like, I'd be glad to tell you when I do. Not much more than I told you already. <laughs> it's whatever I want. Um, but I also recognize that maybe it's not in those areas that you need to submit. Maybe it's in another area. Maybe you're a person that's got some serious anger issues. And this week, you know you blew it. Jesus tells us, or excuse me, the Apostle John tells us, if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You want to experience the life that Jesus offers you, the life that the cross enables you to live? Own it. Man up, woman up. Confess. Admit. Admit to your spouse. Admit to your kid. Admit to your coworker. Admit to that guy you passed the other day that you were in the wrong. Confess it to the Lord. When you have time in communion, there's rails here that you can spend time in confession. I like the rail. I like it. I like it because I get real distracted back there. Take that time. If you want to confess to one of the people up here, glad to hear you. Glad to pray for you. There's no judgment. I got my own issues. Or maybe you're a person that just this whole idea of a meaningless life, an unlovable life, is one that really resonates hard with you right now. Maybe you're a person that's been striving and working and trying so hard to make something of your life. I hang out with middle school and high school kids. This is their life. right? Trying to find meaning in life by something they do, their actions, it never works. My encouragement this week to you Stop trying. Stop. For one week, for one week, I just want to encourage you. Will you pick up your scriptures? Will you read passages about who God says you are? If you're not sure where to look, I would be happy to point you there. Passages that are going to affirm that you are a child of the king. That God loved you so much that he would die on your behalf so that you could be in relationship with him. What, what is one area in your life this week that you need to submit to the king? If you're still not sure, talk to your spouse. For me, like I said, it comes out of convictions of scripture. As I read and I'm like, that'd be nice, but I don't think about how to do it. <laughs> that, that's just me. What is one area this week you can submit to the king? And brothers and sisters, by the power and grace of Jesus Christ, who is working within us, let's live meaningful lives. Amen? Let me pray for you as the band comes on up. Father, I, I have to admit I am convicted um, and humbled, as, as, as most of us are. I am not a righteous person. I'm a screw up. I make mistakes. I get angry. I'm insecure. And cocky. And those prevent me from really being able to experience the life that you offered me through Jesus. Jesus, I am humbled beyond belief that you would die on my behalf, that you would do something for me that I couldn't ever do my own self. Father, I thank you for the power of the cross, but I thank you most of all that it's not simply just a set period in time that I look back to, but that the power of the cross is something that has changed everything going forward into the future, including my life. Lord, I long to live the life you intend me to live, the life you created me to live, the life you saved me to live. But I admit I get in the way way too often. I am one of those people who is in constant rebellion to your ways. Father, help me to embrace the second half of the story rather than live the life Solomon lived. And for my brothers and sisters in this room, I pray the same for them. Help us to experience the fullness of your gospel, the fullness of kingdom life, the fullness of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. Lord, as we enter into worship, as we enter into our offering space, as we enter into confession and communion, Lord, may this be a sacred space where we are encouraged and reminded of your promises. Reminded that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all of our unrighteousness. Lord, thank you for this space. And we pray it all in the power of Jesus' name. Amen.